Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. This week I will be talking with Dr. Han Nguyen Kanzer Kamlin, uh, and we will be talking about her book, Augustine on the Will, that comes out that came out with Oxford University Press, and we're grateful to the press uh, for providing a copy before the conversation. So Dr. Comlin and I t do a deep dive um, into Augustine. Um, we talk about some uh, particular issues in Augustinian studies. Um, one that her work talks about directly is the difference between the early and the late Augustine. And what does that mean um, to study Augustine when we know that some of his thoughts uh, seem to change over the course of his life? And uh, Carol Harrison was one of my uh, doctoral, um, well, uh, reviewers, and she is one who likes to press uh, on the consistency of Augustine throughout his life. But um, regardless of how one thinks about this question of um, change, uh, it is important to recognize that he does live 40 long years and has lots of writings um, where it does seem like he has different, at least emphases um, throughout his life. And so Dr. Comlin really takes into account what that means for Augustine on the will. Uh, we have other conversations, including uh, how Augustine fits within the Reformed tradition. Uh, we talk a little bit about Dr. Comlin's um, background and, and her uh, future research as well. It was a delightful conversation, and, I, and I'm so glad that she took the time to talk with me. Um, as far as the broad podcast sort of news goes, uh, we've had several new supporters, um, so I appreciate uh, Kyrell Newell um, and... Uh, as well as Judy Gale, several new uh, Patreon supporters. For those of you who don't know, uh, we are releasing special episodes only on the Patreon. Um, so those episodes are uh, conversa typically conversations between Tom, Trevor, and I. Um, so we have one on the Acts of Thomas, which is an important document for the history of Christianity in India. Uh, we have one up now on the Odes of Solomon, and eventually our whole back catalog will go up on that um, stream. So, uh, you know, do uh, sign up to be a Patreon. Um, so you'll have plenty of benefits like that. Um, you can also, you know, email me directly and contact me directly if you have other questions and, and suggestions. Uh, Judy has already pointed out, help me uh, realize that I, I can make it so you have a special stream, um, a special RSS feed um, so that you can listen to these episodes in your podcasts app and you don't actually have to go out to the Patreon. Um, so if you have other questions and other issues, you know, do feel free to contact me on Facebook uh, or on the Patreon for our for our special um, supporters there. Um, so. Yeah, without any further ado, I'm going to get us to our episode uh, where Dr. Comlin and I discuss Augustine uh, and the will. Um, all right. Well, uh, today um, on A History of Christian Theology, I am pleased to be talking with uh, Han Luen Kanzer Comlin, um, who is uh, – okay, you're going to have to help me. I looked it up uh, earlier, but I know that you're at Western Seminary, but I don't That's remember. Right. Assistant Professor of Theology? Uh, pr professor now? I feel okay. like, wow, okay. time has flown by. Am I okay. that old already? Um, but yeah, yeah. I'm at the Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, because there's okay. another Western Seminary on the West coast that's right okay mm -hmm. and is it a so is it uh does that make it dutch reformed i, I yes. always think of, okay yeah yes, all right it, it does yeah that's right all right well i i and it, i so uh are you of that uh confessional background or or yeah 
Uh, I wasn't raised in the uh, Dutch Reformed tradition, but I've become a part of that and am now actually ordained in the Reformed Church of America. Oh, excellent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that just reminds me. So, well, now this is a conversation that I kind of want to have with you about Augustine that is not anything that I discussed beforehand. But I, ha- so I teach at a Catholic seminary, uh, but I go to a Presbyterian church. Um, mm. And, um, and mm-hmm. we have another Lutheran uh, seminary in town. And the Catholics and the Lutherans and the uh, Presbyterians all get together to play sports and stuff among the seminarians. <laughs> And I, but I've, and that sometimes they do little like theological colloquiums and, uh, or colloquia. And I was thinking it'd be really fun to do one that was called, Will the Real Augustine Please Stand Up? Um, and, and sort of Augustine in the image of sort of the Reformed mm. tradition, the Lutheran tradition, and the Catholic mm. tradition. Um, Ooh, and just see what, see what comes out. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so, a great idea. I love that. <laughs> so do you do you ever feel like your work in Augustine like intersects with uh, like sort of your own sort of reformed or theolo- your own theological commitments? Or how do you see your task as as someone writing about Augustine, knowing mm-hmm. that he has, I mean, you know, an afterlife, not quite like the Bible, uh, but close mm. in many ways, right? And so all mm-hmm. these traditions are mm-hmm. reading Augustine. And mm-hmm. and so how do you, it, that, that's been a hot, kind of an interesting question. How do we sort through the kind of many Augustines that we have in the end? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's one of the exciting things about studying Augustine is that he is someone that so many people can claim as their own. (laughs) Um, And that can make it difficult and challenging, but also really fun. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I think that we could do more in the Reformed tradition in recovering a positive relationship to Augustine (laughs) and acknowledging just how much we do owe to him. I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, for someone like you, it's obvious who's studied the history of Christian theology. But I think for a lot of Reformed people on the ground, when they Mm -hmm. think of the sources of the Reformed tradition, their mind goes to Calvin Mm -hmm. or best case scenario, also to Zwingli, recognizing his influence (laughs) on the Reformed tradition. But I don't think people always think back to who was so formative for Calvin and Zwingli and realizing that that stream really flows from Augustine. So um, I like to help folks in my tradition sort of see some of the positive aspects of the Augustinian legacy and shaping what yeah. we believe today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and after, so like, I felt like as do, I did a, a historical theology degree on Augustine. And so I, what I felt like my job was to do was sort of see the things that influenced him um, rather mm. than who he influenced, mm. if you like. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. a lot of my work was kind of building, building the pieces up until understanding Augustine himself. And so I had less knowledge of exactly who Calvin, uh, what Calvin was doing with Augustine or what Zwingli was doing with Augustine. I mean, I knew mm. broadly that they would call themselves, you know, uh, would say that Augustine was important. But I found mm-hmm. oftentimes uh, that, you know, Calvin does not like Augustine as much as I thought. <laughs> like, mm. it is actually funny where the mm. places where he ends up saying, well, I actually, like, I, I use I use a quote from his commentaries in the Gospel of John, where he says that, like, Augustine is, like, caught up in Originian allegories, oh. uh, and is very, mm. like, censorious mm-hmm. of Augustine's uh, mm-hmm. influence. And it's kind of funny, and it's like, oh, well, he doesn't just love Augustine. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and I'm also with you in that I, I'm not someone who's done a lot of my academic work on, yeah. say, the Reformed 
reception of Augustine, but yeah. I'm grateful here at the seminary to have as my colleague, um, Todd Billings. And then I also have mm. Suzanne McDonald as my colleagues who specialize in Calvin. And um, Todd has done a lot of work on okay. the Catholicity of the reformers and how this mm-hmm. was actually a, a value for them is drawing on early Christian thinkers more generally, not just nice. Augustine. But yeah. as you say, yeah, there's also points of pushback that are so yeah. fascinating. And I think thinking farther forward, I have done a little bit of exploration of Karl Barth mm. um, and his reception of Augustine. And that's fascinating because mm-hmm. like this aspect of Calvin's um, concern about Augustine, you see that in Barth just, oh, um, writ large. He, yeah. it's, he regards Augustine with deep suspicion. Um, well, is there the phrase, the Susa gift or what is the sweet gift or something of poison or what is, I don't remember poison, the exact. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, he's so, I'm, and it's fascinating to me. I almost think Karl Barth is more, I think he's more nervous about Augustine than he needs to be. Uh-huh. And that not even seeing just how much they have in common. Yeah. Um, but yeah, cause for him, it's largely because of Augustine's platonic inheritance mm-hmm. and the extent to which Augustine appropriates versions of Platonism positively. And, yeah. you know, for Karl Barth, that's, of course, anathema. We don't want that. <laughs> um, and he thinks Augustine is is so dangerous. Um, yeah. I think he recognizes the power of his thinking. and yeah, Right. So. Yeah, which is a funny thing, too, because I just think when the more that I read Augustine, the more I found him a, a lot alike the Cappadocians um, in the way that they received the sort of platonic inheritance. And, you know, you tend to think like some people or at least I felt like I had been taught that Augustine was a little more on an island, you know, because he says in the beginning of De Trinitate that he hasn't read the Eastern Fathers or, you know, whatever his knowledge of Greek. I know these are, you know, debated topics, but I always felt like he was, you know, sort of oh, he's over over there and then mm. the Cappadocians are over here and then the more that I read I was like mm. it all just sort of actually seems a lot closer um, mm. than than um, than maybe a few few stray statements might make it sound in in day trend mm-hmm. yeah yeah I think that's right I think that's right and yeah I think Lewis Ayers and friends are um, yeah oh right they yeah. have a really helpful perspective on that too just we yeah. don't want to see these folks east and west as sort of anachron we don't want to art be creating this artificial sense of unity but also not anachronistically reading back divisions right. as you say that yeah that aren't there yeah yeah. Well, so to think more about your book, um, let's uh, so we can think about Augustine's contribution. Um, and one of them uh, that that I have sort of said, and I don't remember how strongly I've put it to classes before, but that one of the great kind of contributions to Western thinking um, is is the will. Right. So Augustine put pl- places a high degree of emphasis on the will. Um, and so uh, can you sort of say, is that a is that a fair characterization of him? I know that you're not exactly uh you know in your intro you mentioned a little bit of how he fits philosophically and other things but is this is this right is this augustine's great contribution and uh and then maybe uh, after that we can go into what like a quick you know definition of the will for augustine Mm, okay yeah you know i think i hesitate to identify the Augustine's thinking on the will as his single greatest contribution. Um, But I definitely do think it's, it is a help, like a, 
it's the will is a way into mm -hmm. some of his really important characteristic thinking. Yeah. And I guess um, you invited me to say also, to what extent would I disagree with this or challenge yeah. this characterization? I think that if we think of him as a theoretician of the will, mm -hmm. then this is going to be misleading. Okay. And that maybe gets to your second question a little bit mm -hmm. about his definition of the will, because I don't think, you know, he does offer one early on, but I don't think that's really his contribution and that he's really mm. interested in that, that interest in that question. Mm -hmm. So it's, if we look at, if we're going to look at the will as an isolated silo, I don't think that he really gives us something that's going to be satisfying without resorting to a larger frame mm -hmm. so he's not going to give us a neat and tidy account of the will without reference to theology and mm -hmm. to different theological contexts so i think we could maybe say yeah the um his theologically contextualized understanding of the will might be a characteristic contribution okay but, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's sort of a uh, like jargony, long way of putting it. So, but yeah, I would say at the with those qualifications, I would agree that okay, his thinking on the will is really formative and important. Uh, okay, so um, well, we were uh, let's see. So to go to backtrack a little bit, we were thinking about this the difficulty of defining will and and how will works uh, for Augustine because this seems to be a change um, mm -hmm. in 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 his thinking and and even that notion of change within Augustine is a is a hotly debated point among the scholars. So uh, yes. I I approach I tried to write it with some trepidation, like not wanting to like push <laughs> you to take sides per se mm. or uh, something mm. like that. But yeah. So could you help mm -hmm. us uh, think like why – well, why would that even be an issue to talk about change in Augustine? Yeah, yeah. This is one of the exciting areas of debate, as you say, in Augustinian studies where we have this whole spectrum of possibilities lined up. And um, from think folks who would argue for greater continuity in Augustine's thought – I think Carol Harrison's a great example of that – to those who would – argue for radical discontinuity. I think of Gaetano Letieri's L'altro Augustino. It's <laughs> like they're to the point of multiple Augustines. Yes. Um, so there's quite a spectrum there. And I and to your question, like, um, oh, why does this matter? Why does this present itself? I think part of the reason these debates are so heated and so fascinating is because underneath this issue of how to interpret Augustine, there's normative, the normative level of, mm -hmm. well, which perspective represented in Augustine's thinking is the most helpful. And mm -hmm. what's particularly confusing slash fascinating is that you can have very differing normative perspectives from, um, per, uh, from two scholars who at, are at the same place in terms mm -hmm. of how they analyze Augustine interpretively. So I think those levels, then that just makes for a really fascinating, complex sort of situation where there's the interpretation level and then also the normative level of what is a helpful perspective on mm -hmm. God and human life. Yeah. Yeah. And so how, how does, uh, so 
could just um, just in in general terms, like what are you ma- mainly arguing for um, as far as either what the will is or how that will kind of looks differently within the book? So just kind of a basic <laughs> what what you're pushing for in in Augustine on the will. Absolutely, yeah. Well, as I mentioned, I though uh, the early Augustine does have a kind of very minimalistic skeletal definition of the will a movement Mm. of the soul with nothing forcing it (laughs) Uh, i think that what's very fruitful about his thinking is the images that he uses for the will and i think that helps to give us a sense of just how much dynamism Mm. that's maybe a sort of neutral term to use (laughs) when it comes to the continuity discontinuity debate so how much dynamism there is in his thinking Um, Because in the earliest phase, Augustine talks about the will as a hinge, Mm -hmm. and it's something – he talks about it as like having a lot of power and complete freedom to choose between alternatives, to choose between Mm -hmm. good and evil. And it's sort of at the center of human life. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, in around 396 or so, I think there's a – a transformation in his thinking where he comes to this new perspective where he thinks the will isn't really the most um, fundamental explanation for the human turn or change to pursue God. Really, there's something behind that, and it's mm. God moving the human will. So suddenly, the human will is not just in the position of being a subject. Mm-hmm. Um, deciding where it will go. It's being operated upon, Mm -hmm. um, being acted upon um, by God and being changed. And um, in this phase, we also see him start referring to the will as a link in the chain that binds Mm. us to sin. So this is a totally different image than his earlier one, um, where the will is something that's like now constraining us, whereas it had earlier been the way in which we exercise our freedom. Yeah. Well, and that just, you know, reminds me of book eight of the confessions, right? I mean, that the chain image is so strong there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah, and and that and even these, you know, these images, like it, it's another thing. Just uh, so I mean, yeah, for listeners, obviously, we have two people who love Augustine and spend a lot of time reading Augustine. But uh, you know, uh, one of the things that you're what you just said reminds me of like one of the uh, the fun things that I did when I was reading researching his sermons was just picking up on what images that that he was mm. using a lot, and this really gives mm-hmm. us a character of who Augustine is in a different way than i mean i use this as an example and maybe it's a, a little bit of a straw man but like i always found reading thomas aquinas just very boring um <laughs> and um i like there's a lot of interesting ideas behind it and i don't mean to i'm sure mm. he was a way more interesting guy than the summa alone <laughs> would suggest mm. but with augustine you always get the well in his sermons and in the confessions you get sort of charming images and things mm-hmm. that are you're drawn to his way of speaking mm-hmm. um and so you have to pay attention though because I think his way of speaking still communicates some of the ideas behind them. And so in this case, paying attention to the hinge or paying attention mm-hmm. to the chain can sort of help you see, okay, so he's trying to tell you what he thinks. He's just doing it a little more metaphorically, or at least mm-hmm. the metaphor is adding to what he is also di- sort of more directly saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And that's something I love about his preaching is, yeah. wow, the, and the, these images can really capture your imagination. And you 
you mentioned earlier how teaching is really important to you. It's also important to me. And I think these images are, are so powerful in that pedagogical context too. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Um, so can, so do you have any idea or can you say a little bit more about what these changes are that is, we just talked about this movement. Uh, so what's going on in the late three nineties, three ninety six, three ninety seven that's making him kind of adjust a little bit as he thinks about God's role in our will. Yeah. Yeah. So to be honest, I think that, um, one work Augustine's two Simplician really gives us in a nutshell, the key insight that he then keeps working on for the rest of his career. So mm -hmm. I do, I am someone who sees that work as an important turning uh -huh. point in his thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and I think basically there, he's trying to work through, you know, in Romans 9, when we hear about like Jacob and Esau, Jacob, have I loved Esau? Have I hated? How mm -hmm. do we make sense of this? Why yeah. is this? And he tries his hardest to come up with some kind of um, explanation why this is really fair and rationally explicable on the part mm -hmm. of God to have to prefer Jacob. And he says, well, you know, for example, like, I think that God uh, foresaw good works in advance and for this reason he mm. preferred jacob but he keeps struggling with this because he i think he's sensing that it does it's that interpretation really pushes against the grain of the text mm -hmm. and so finally he in reflecting on this himself he says he has that famous line um i struggled but you know the grace of god prevailed and he comes to think that it's not that um god sees in advance our are the good things we'll do or even our faith. And mm -hmm. on that basis, um, God accepts us, but rather it's like God first chooses us and therefore transforms mm -hmm. our will. And that's the reason we're able to have faith and able to do good work. So it's a, the causality basically does a flip. Yeah. Um, so that in a nutshell, I think is the insight that he comes to, but that's like a, um, quite a change of of perspective from <laughs> yeah. what he thought previously. Yeah. So I think that it takes him many, many years to keep thinking this through, thinking through the implications of this um, basic interpretation of Paul that he comes to. In, yeah. At some yeah. And I was just I was just trying to remember in my own like, you know, thinking about uh, like reading Peter Brown's or other biographies, like things about like what exactly is going on in his life in the 390s. Mm -hmm. You know, he's mm -hmm. just become bishop and mm -hmm. he's like really spending a lot. You know, he, he's not traveling anymore. He's not mm. uh, he's kind of settled he, mm. maybe he's really digging into Paul and mm -hmm. just sort of like, OK, I guess I got to figure out what I think about all of this stuff. I guess the Donatist controversy is pretty much much in full swing mm -hmm. uh, yeah right yeah and so i think so definitely his intensive immersion in the writings of paul i'm someone who takes him sort of at his word that mm -hmm. that was really formative for him and actually the specific words in paul i think mm -hmm. he he argues that this is influential on him and then mm -hmm. i think you can see that when he articulates his argument there but also yeah i don't think it's irrelevant that He's been involved in pastoral ministry since mm -hmm. around 391. And so he's seen some of the realities of how the human heart works, how the human will works, and just how difficult that is mm -hmm. and how much in need we are of 
God's assistance. So um, it's hard to explain causality when it comes to (laughs) developments in Augustine's thinking, but it's certainly fun to speculate about um, what all is driving him to to this conclusion? Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I was just thinking, like, I mean, I I get to spend a lot of my time, as do you, in you know, I I, I did uh, my education for a long time, um, and then now I'm, uh, you know, I'm still at, on a university calendar and spend mm-hmm. most of my time either with students who are really deep in ideas and things, or you know, I'm in that deep in my own ideas. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, if you if you don't spend your days uh, in those cases, which I guess is mostly true for Augustine, um, right? So most of his life was in education or one way or another. And then then he goes to Africa <laughs> and he's like, I got to adjudicate these small little yep. disputes every day. And mm-hmm. I have to, you know, try to talk to all these people, some of whom are still speaking Punic and other things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just like, you, you're like, oh man, I totally, you know, my view of, like, it's like when I think about like, you know, trying to even understand what's going on in America right now, I'm like, mm-hmm. well, my view is so skewed like the only people i talk to are Mm. other people on a faculty or Mm. the students who are being taught by that faculty Mm. i have no sense of what's going Mm. on uh except for this very narrow and kind of peculiar niche Mm -hmm. right he's on the ground he's not in the ivory tower (laughs) anymore right Mm -hmm. yeah but um well to kind of turn to another uh, insight that you bring to the book um so i i remember in one of my classes in seminary i had to memorize a bunch of latin phrases um because uh and even though i had taken latin in high school uh it had been a while since i'd done it but uh, stacy johnson made us memorize a list of things <laughs> um and some of them were all of these pose pacare pose non pacare um <sighs> which he you know he said well this is from augustine uh this is how he understood understood uh the you know the the w- like what humans were capable of doing or not doing sinning or not sinning um and you bring out the idea well actually uh it's hard to find the very mm. specific uh tr- like well, I was going to say tripartite, but I guess that's that four different as there are ultimately four of them in the old schema. Uh, mm-hmm. But you talk about uh, something a little bit different, a different way that is more native to actually Augustine's own way of thinking. So can you help us think through uh it's a way of almost dividing human time, really, right? Um, and and what are the the major epochs of human time? Uh, could you say a little yeah, bit about that? Sure, sure. Yeah, I that that was one of the surprises is um, looking for so the force the so-called four states view has mm-hmm. often been attributed to okay. Augustine, and then as you say, it's often connected to these um, terms. So um, passe non picari. So in, in the created um, state where people could not sin. And then I won't run through all of them, but, um, he, these phrases do appear in him, but, um, not all four together and not with, with him positively describing his own vision. Sometimes he's describing what, um, he's in dialogue with Pelagius Mm -hmm. and describing his view as described by Pelagius situations (laughs) like that. Um, Anyway, but I do think that this four-part structure is present in Augustine, and Uh I do think that we can regard that as one of his major contributions Mm -hmm. to the Christian tradition, not to Mm -hmm. say that he's a unique source of this view, (laughs) Um, largely because I think it does stem from a kind of biblical narrative or perspective Mm -hmm. on history. But yeah, basically that there's this um, state of 
original created integrity where mm-hmm. um the will in his view does have this hinge like uh, powerful capacity to choose between good and evil um, but um, as we know the story takes a negative turn and then the fall comes into this the picture so now um, this is this new time of of constraint where there isn't this freedom to choose the good there is still mm-hmm. freedom of choice <laughs> people <laughs> can right. still choose what they want and this is right. important for all kinds of the, yeah. uh, theological reasons um but there isn't this same freedom for the good anymore. Uh-huh. But then thanks to redemption in Christ, we are we recover this ability to do what is right with God's help, always mm-hmm. relying on God's help. And then in the eschaton, it's this whole different stage, which I find so beautiful and exciting to think about. And I think for Augustine helps to inform the other stages too, thinking about what is it we're headed for. It's this kind of freedom that is so perfect that there is no possibility of deviating from it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a bit counterintuitive. I think yeah. with students, it's fun to talk about this. What uh-huh. what does true freedom mean? And does there right. have to be an alternative mm-hmm. for for true freedom to exist? And Augustine's view is, no, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, we, we no longer even can sin, but that in no way um, inhibits our ability to do what we long to do. So in that yeah. sense, we're, we're fully free. Yeah. So those would be those, those four stages. Yeah. And I found, and I think in the book you go into, uh, but th- this really is all, like a, almost an exegetical move um, for Augustine, right? So like, how is, how it exactly is he like, and I think the one you use is Romans seven, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I do want to do, I don't do. And you know, the, the sort of the Pauline knot that he ties himself into. And Augustine says, well, well ultimately the question be- at least becomes for Augustine, what period uh, is he talking about? Is he talking mm-hmm. about under the law? Is he talking about under grace? as he taught you know where where is augustine in this schema um and so it can be a really uh, a helpful way to um even for people reading the bible okay well th- you know think what what scenario is the the writer imagining um and mm-hmm. where sort of where are we um in the timeline of one's you know regeneration or relationship to to salvation or what what have you Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. That it's a helpful hermeneutic to take. Yeah. It's from scripture, but also as a way of interpreting the Bible. And how do we fit these differing statements together and see them as an integrated whole? And I think to relate this back to your earlier question about continuity and discontinuity mm. in Augustine too, I think these four phases, they help give us a way of thinking, sort of like maybe moving beyond this impasse uh-huh. of this is, you know, which is right, the continuity uh-huh. thesis and the discontinuity <laughs> thesis. But I do think there's a sense where there are these dramatic transformations in his thinking, but not ones that leave behind uh, the mm. earlier perspectives as irrelevant. Uh-huh. It's more like reframing them. So his thinking, for example, on the create the created will, it's not that he absolutely rejects that. It's more he says, well, you know, actually maybe this has a more limited relevance mm. chronologically than I thought and reframes it as, well, this does pertain, but specifically to the created will. So yeah. adding layers. Right. 
Yeah, and I think I mentioned this in, in something that I sent you, but uh, the, the Manichees also have their own sort of uh, differentiation of time Ooh. and where we are within time. Are we in the sort of before the evil, ma- the evil matter uh, mm. kind of infiltrated the thing? Mm-hmm. Um, are we in the middle where, you know, mm. so in the Manichaean outlook, sort of the human situation is somewhere halfway in uh, so somewhere where we're, you know, we have part of our of like the good God in our soul and then part of mm. bound by matter. Matter, and then we're ultimately mm. working for this place where mm. the matter and the evil god will be all gone. And I, th- mm. I think in the Manichaean outlook, though, it's only three. Uh, mm. It's only sort of a tripartite mm. way of viewing the world. Uh, but what my uh, and I just taught a I just taught a class on Augustine's Confessions uh, for uh, the Greystone Institute, and um, and I <laughs> I have been reading a bunch of Manichaean stuff. So like <laughs> so then uh, then all of a sudden like now I view the Confessions in a totally different way uh, hmm. because if you really have a like if you really hmm. dig in deep and I know it gets weird the Manichaean <laughs> stuff gets a little strange uh, but it, it really does help you mm. like go mm-hmm. like okay well I'm not saying Augustine mm-hmm. agrees with all of that mm-hmm. stuff but it mm-hmm. clearly had to have been an, you know something that was influencing mm. him if he was with them for over a decade but but even breaking up the world like sorry I don't even know if I want to I don't want to say breaking up the world breaking up time breaking mm. up I mean I'm trying to think about what you would say what is being broken up in these different uh, divisions uh, mm. but but he salvation history I guess mm. Um, yeah, I guess that's the right mm. phrase. Uh, mm. But yeah, anyway, mm. there's a kind yeah. of possible influence there. But yeah, that's so interesting to think about. I think that Augustine's relationship with Manichaeism is like extremely fascinating and fruitful. Yeah. And there's a lot of room for more work on that. Yeah, I um, I think it's interesting too how in my recollection of Manichaean perspectives that he was engaging with too there's the the original state is one of separation between Mm. um the negative creator demiurge and the good uh deity Mm -hmm. and so there's kind of this helpful um segregation i guess between different elements um, entities that exist and then at the end there's like then in the middle everything gets all confused yeah. mixed up yeah. Yeah. and then at the end everything's all separated again so that's yeah. really fascinating to me to think about i think you're right it's such an interesting counterpoint to augustine because i think in some ways his christian theology of the trinity sort of flips that on its head mm. where at the beginning it's not separation it's like perfectly integrated union of love uh-huh. and then at the end there, there's a return to that too but in the middle there's yeah. a sep- separation not between the members of the trinity but there's a kind of yeah um, human beings become alienated from god the creation becomes alienated from god yeah. so it's like the separation is the middle part uh-huh. that um through his i and as we discussed there are multiple fa- more phases for augustine than for the manichees yeah but then that's that gets overcome um in some sense yeah in the in the eschaton for augustine so right yeah yeah well and i like one of the in the confessions he goes through like god making then the humans deficere like destroying missing Mm -hmm. and then remake and then what christ Mm -hmm. comes to do is to remake Mm -hmm. it's sort of a similar Mm -hmm. tripartite like Mm -hmm. you know uh Mm -hmm. the the middle is our undoing what -hmm. god has done and then christ Mm -hmm. is the redoing um Mm -hmm. sort of mopping Mm -hmm. up (laughs) and, and turning things back to what god had originally done yeah i love that and there 
to bring it back to our discussion earlier about these four phases, there we can see like the integrity of that, mm-hmm. that the, um, what Christ does is not somehow like um, not only not opposed to the act of creation, but it's like deepening it. It's a mm-hmm. recreation and making mm-hmm. it even more profound. So we see how these phases are like all held together in yeah. the action of the triune God. Yeah. So one question that I ask scholars that is it can be as much related to the research of this book uh, as you like, or it can be something totally different. Uh, but I, I like I said, I feel like it has a kind of Augustinian character. Like, what is something you've changed about? Uh, because, of course, Augustine goes through lots of changes. Uh, but what, so I, the, the way that I phrase it is what is one thing that you once thought was true and now think is false or vice versa? What is one thing that you thought was false and now think is true? Hmm. <laughs> so, um, the bunch of things come to mind, but maybe I'll start with Augustine since we're on the <laughs> history of theology podcast and yeah. talking about Augustine. My mind has changed a lot as far as how to both how to interpret him and ideas that he has. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I remember in seminary taking a, a course. So we, we both went to the same seminary, taking a course on the ethics and politics of Augustine with John Bolin and, mm-hmm. um, first getting introduced to this idea that there was a dramatic development in Augustine's Mm. thinking whereby he changed his mind in a big (laughs) way. And I just thought, well, this sounds pretty preposterous. Like, (laughs) um, can that really be right? And I, I'm sort of puzzled as to why I was so skeptical about this at the time. (laughs) I think it sounded to me a little bit like, a conspiracy theory about what Augustine was saying. And, and I do think there are some interpreters mm. of people in the history of whatever, in, in, interpreters of history who say, mm-hmm. you know, X figure says this, but really <laughs> this is what this person is thinking. And these mm-hmm. are the real forces operating beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. And when there's very little textual evidence for that and what they do say. And mm-hmm. my feeling on interpretations like that is, well, maybe, maybe, (laughs) but we really can't um, conclude that that's the case because, (laughs) I mean, it goes against, there's, yeah, it goes against often what these people are actually saying. So um, I was, I think maybe I was thinking, well, perhaps this is that kind of interpretation of Augustine, but Mm -hmm. then um, in that class, I think I was shown evidence that no, he actually does say this that himself, that he yeah. has this change of mind. Um, but I was still a little skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but going on, I eventually, yeah, became persuaded that his mind does does change a lot. So yeah. that was a, one big change of mind for me. <laughs> well, and I guess, you know, with Augustine, if you have, you know, the, the number I've always heard is five and a half million words. Augustine wrote five or five and a half million words. I don't know who <laughs> counted that, but I've heard that I've seen that in a few places. Um, hmm. So whatever, a lot of words. Um, if you're going to write that many words over some 40 years or whatever, uh, it's it's likely that you're going to have said something different um, at some point within that. And so uh, that's one of the things that makes Augustine uh, fun to read is that Augustine, you know, might have said one thing at one point, and then we have so many of those words that we can see what he said later on, um, and and so it's a little bit of that. Um, 
you, you know, it's, it's just there's so much textual evidence to work with uh, mm-hmm. vers- versus like trying to yeah. understand Paul. Um, mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> we just have very little to work with. Is this a real Pauline letter? Is this not? It doesn't look like he wrote in Romans. Well, who knows? We only have a couple thousand words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. And then it's then with Augustine, another disanalogy between Augustine and Paul is he gives us a kind of roadmap for how to interpret him. Yeah. And so then the question becomes, well, how much should we trust this roadmap? Well, there you us? go. And so that that just makes for so much great fun with all the debates around that, too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, good. Well, uh, the, the last question that I'll kind of, we could kind of end with, uh, just a curious question for me, uh, as you were, you know, you're writing all of this stuff on, on Augustine and really tracing him, uh, from beginning to end. Um, I, I have to say like, so of the things that I know Augustine really well, uh, Pel- the Pelagian controversy, I know the least well. Mm. Um, and, um, I also find it really hard to read Augustine when he's Mm. in these debates, partly Mm. because like, you know, he's trying to decide, you know, what happens to babies or he's trying to decide, you know, these kind of esoteric kind of things or what Mm. have you. And I find it far Mm -hmm. less charming uh, than than I I love Mm -hmm. the confessions. I love most of the sermons and I'm like, when I get to the Pelagian stuff, I'm like, do I really want to go this deep into mm. uh, what he thinks God might think before the foundation of the world and all of these sorts of things? <laughs> but I don't know. I'm just curious. What like do you have a particular period uh, where you find Augustine that you're like more in agreement with him on the will? Mm-hmm. Or do you find a place where you're like, mm. I know this is what he says, and I'm going to argue that that's what he says. I don't know <laughs> that I really want to agree that that's mm. what we should think about. Mm. The will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Chad, I will admit there are a lot of open theological questions <laughs> for me when it comes to the relationship of uh, grace and free will in Augustine's late writings. Yeah, um, I do think he's the kind of person who's hard to just dismiss entirely. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm I'm with you in those very late writings from the Pelagian controversy, <laughs> like 426 to yeah. the end of his life. Um, some of them, especially his uh, writings against Julian of Aclanum, mm-hmm. they, they get to be pretty extreme in some ways, talking about, like earlier he had already said, you know, God not only governs or um, rules our wills, God drives our wills. Uh-huh. You know, I, I think I can go with that. I can see a way that God doing that is compatible with our freedom. Um, but then in this later phase, he wants to s- sometimes... Sometimes he makes it sound like, you know, we're not really involved very much at all. Um, Uh And so to me, that's not quite so persuasive and nuanced as the best of his thinking. Uh Um, And for his perspective at at its best, I really love actually how he approaches things in his sermons. Mm -hmm. And this was not something I got to get into in my book as much as I would have wanted to, but Mm -hmm. later did another shorter essay length project on um, grace in Augustine's sermons. Oh, nice. And I just love how in the sermons, he just really um, balances on the tightrope and doesn't fall off on either side. He just, Uh um, he talks about how we constantly have to pray for God's help Uh because we cannot do this on our own. Uh And that's not just, you know, God gives us this influx of grace on our conversion and then it's up to us from there. You do your best and God will do the rest like a poster that I saw (laughs) growing up when I was a kid. Um, 
it's like we're continually entirely dependent on God's help and there's no room for pride and we just need to constantly go to God requesting his aid. Um, So he doesn't like fall down into this side of just saying, okay, we're fine. We can do it on our own. But then he also maintains along with that, that we can't just be complacent. And Mm. he has this image in his, we were talking about images earlier. He has this image of this, you know, he's like, you can't just lie on your back with your mouth open and tell God to rain food into your mouth. (laughs) And then after he does that, say, you know, now God chew it for me as well. (laughs) So he, he's got this emphasis on a reliance on God and also telling us we need to work hard and we need to try our best. And, um, our agency matters. So I love how in his sermons, which you know from having done a lot more work on them than I have, <laughs> that the dating of those is tricky. But I think yeah. maybe there's also something about that context where he's talking to people on the ground and interpreting yep. the Bible where you find both aspects um, of reliance on God and the need for us to do what's right and work hard. That he like holds them together in a beautiful way. Yeah. Well, excellent. Um, I uh, maybe we well, maybe the very last question I'll say is uh, so what what are you you said you're working on early Christian your like your current project is writing about innovation and newness in early Christianity is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. Yeah. It's Can you tell exciting... us a little a little more about that? <laughs> well, it's kind of fun for me because I love Augustine so much, and I hope that I'll be able to keep working on him in some way for as long as the Lord gives me life. Um, but it also, this project gives me a chance to explore some other figures and go back earlier. So I'm actually starting with the second century. Mm. Um, but I want to tell this story of how early Christians actually had a lot of positive things to say about newness and mm. innovation, which is not the, I mean, on the one hand, that may seem like an obvious thing to folks who are embedded in our current context and mainly thinking of that where we haven't especially in the u.s we really value creativity and innovation and newness but um for someone like you thought about like classical sources this is not the assumed in the same way in in the early christian period and the period preceding it is if anything the yeah baseline assumption would probably be that older is better Mm -hmm. Um, and they even had a saying that older is better (laughs) so um i think it's really fascinating to see how christians responded to that assumption Mm -hmm. um because they had to face this argument that christianity's newness made it seem unbelievable and not true so how did they how did they deal with that and how did that affect their account of the new and whether it can be a good thing. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate you taking your time and I look for uh, taking your time to talk with me this morning and uh, I look or well, I guess we're afternoon now um, <laughs> and uh, look forward to uh, seeing your next book on newness. And yeah, so today's been my guest has been uh, Hanluin Kanzer Kamlin and thank you for being on a history of Christian theology. Thank you, Chad. It's been a pleasure.